السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so welcome to another lesson of QP and inshallah ta'ala uh, we're towards the middle of the surah of uh, tafsir of surah al-balad and inshallah ta'ala in the next two to three weeks I think inshallah we will complete the tafsir of this surah. So uh, this surah surah al-balad uh, we, were, we discussed last week the last the, the, the two or three verses from verses uh, six or five six and seven. In which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ Does mankind, does, does, does a person think that, they, that none has the power over him? And we mentioned then that some of the scholars with tafsir or the majority of the scholars with tafsir said that that verse is a general verse that applies to everyone. And others from amongst them said that it was revealed for a certain individual first and foremost it was pertaining to a certain incident or a certain individual and then they differed somewhat as to who that was referring to and as we mentioned last week in some detail some of the scholars said that it was a man by the name of Abu al-Shaddin and this was a man who was known for his strength and for his physical prowess for his ability to overcome other people physically with his strength and it was referring to him and he was a disbeliever would become an enemy of Islam and others from amongst them said that it was referring to a man by the name of Amr ibn Wud or in some narrations, Amr ibn Abdi Wud. And he is the man that challenged Ali radiallahu anhu a duel in the Battle of Khandaq according to some narrations. And he is the one that Ali radiallahu anhu, the Prophet didn't want him to go and fight. And then eventually he keeps asking permission and the Prophet allows him to do so. And he goes and he overcomes Amr in the duel, in the battle, and he kills him. And others from amongst them said, no, that it's referring to a man by the name of Al-Harith ibn Amr ibn Nawfal. A man who accepted Islam and he would commit certain mistakes or, or, or commit certain sins and then he would be told to expiate for those sins or for whatever he did uh, financially. He would pay expiations and he said that this is something which I have spent a great deal of money on, meaning these expiations since I followed the Prophet So the scholars differed as to what it's referring to. Um, but they agreed uh, or the majority of the scholars agreed that it is a general verse and even those scholars who as we know from the methodology of tafsir they say that it's referring to a single specific verse or specific person or specific incident that is in the first instance but the verse is still taken by its generality uh, and then the scholars differ as to who it's referring to that this per- that no one has or does this person not think that anyone has power over him is it referring to other humans around him that this person doesn't think that anyone is stronger and we know just generally from life experience, we know generally from the universal laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon this earth, that there's not a single thing that you do and do well, except that someone at one point or another will overcome you in it. Today you may be the strongest person that you know, but it's only a matter of time until someone becomes stronger than you. You may be the uh, richest person that you know, but it's only a matter of time until someone takes that title from you, or you lose some of that wealth, whatever the case may be. That is the sunnah of Allah Azza wa in the universe. Nothing lives except that it dies. Nothing is strong that except that it becomes weak. Nothing is at the pinnacle of its youth except that it will succumb to old age and frailty and becoming infirm. That is the universal law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or does it refer to أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ Does it refer to our Lord and Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Does this person not think, not understand that they will that Allah Azza wa Jal is more powerful than them. Like the people of Ad, when they said, and they used to boast, Man minna quwa, Who has more strength, more power than us? And Allah Azza wa Jal says in response, أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْا أَنَّ اللَّهَ الَّذِي خَلَقَهُمْ هُوَ أَشَدُّ مِنْهُمْ quwa. Do they not see that Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who created them, and that He therefore has more strength than them? So those are the two positions that you have among some of the scholars of Tafsir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on to say, Yaqulu ahlaktu maal al-lubada. 
indeed that I have spent a great deal of wealth. The word lubada, as we mentioned, comes from the uh, root word of, of, of talbid. And that means, literally, linguistically, it means a, something which is uh, a great deal of something which is tangled together, which is brought together. And what it means here is a great deal and a mass of wealth. And this is in reference to, uh, as according to some of the scholars of tafsir, is a reference to those people who spent their wealth in particular, specifically, to fight the region of Islam, to oppose the Prophet wasallam, as was the position of Ibn Jarir al-Tabari and other scholars of tafsir, that they said that it's specifically regarding these types of issues because that is what seems to be the context, especially if you take into account those incidents that we say that those the, the previous verse was regarding people like Amr ibn Wud and Abu al-Shaddin. These are people who would become would become arch opponents, enemies of Islam, and they would be people who would spend their wealth in opposition to Islam and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They're not the only ones. The likes of Abu Jahl and the likes of Abu Lahab and the likes of Umayyah ibn Khalaf and others. They were people who spent their wealth opposing Islam, and they will then go to say that we have spent a great deal of wealth in that opposition. But the position of other scholars was to make that even more general. Ibn Qayyim, for example, rahimahullah ta'ala, was of the position that it's simply referring to all of those people who spend their wealth indulging, spend their wealth becoming engaged in spending their, uh, indulging and spending their wealth in, in things which divert them away from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so those people, they just waste their life. And so it's referring to those people. Because then Allah Azza wa Jal will say in, in, or goes on to say in verse number 7, does this person think that no one was watching, right? that no one knew what was going on? So whether we take the tafsir of Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, that it's referring to those people who are spending their wealth to oppose Allah and His Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the region of Islam, don't those people think and know that Allah is watching, that Allah is all hearing, that Allah is all knowing, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold them to account and punish them for the way that they're using their wealth to uh, to oppose Allah and His Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or if you were to take the other tafsir of Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah taala, again those people who are wasting their wealth, indulging, not caring where their money comes from, not caring where they spend it, not caring how they spend it, not caring what oppression or evil or sin may be committed in that process, don't they know that someone is watching? Don't they think that someone is hold, going to hold them to account for their actions? So then, when we come on to uh, the verses that we're going to begin with this week, inshallah ta'ala, from verse number 8 onwards, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then continues on from the previous verses. Doesn't a person know, or doesn't a person think that there is someone who is more powerful than them? They spend their money and a great deal of that wealth in opposition to Allah, or whether it's just simply indulging in life and wasting their time. Don't they know that someone is watching them? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this verse, Alam Najallahu Did we not give him eyes? As Ibn Ashur Rahimahullah Ta'ala said, this is uh, a verse that speaks to the uh, the evil of what that person did, right? It is speaking, it is it is humiliating them or or belittling them for their actions. This is a person who doesn't know and doesn't understand that Allah Azza wa is all watching, all seeing, all hearing that Allah Azza wa is recording everything. So now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using the very same attributes that a person has, the very same senses and blessings that Allah Azza wa has given to someone. Alam Didn't we give to this person the ability to see? So if a person has the ability to see, we have eyes that Allah Azza wa has blessed us with, we have eyesight that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has endowed us with, we use these eyes in our lives to do many, many things. And we use them in for good and we use them for evil. But we use them as a means to accumulate wealth, a means of spending that wealth, a means of deciding what to do and what not to do. And we use them as best we can in our lives to do what we want to do or need to do in this life. If that is the case of the human with all of their deficiencies, with all of their weaknesses, with all of their limitations, then what about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator? So surely if man or humans or a person has the ability to see and our limited eyesight, our limited ability to see, still allows us to accumulate so much, still allows us to achieve and accomplish so much, then what about the Creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whose eyesight is over everything, whose eyesight is something which penetrates each and every single thing, and that nothing is hidden from Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And Imam At-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that when the person, or when a person says, Ahlaktu mal al-lubada, this person who says that I spent all of my wealth, a great deal of my wealth, Allah Azza wa is saying that didn't we give this person eyesight or eyes by which they will be able to see, by which they will be able to see the many evidences that Allah Azza wa gave so a person can use their eyes for good or for evil, right? Allah Azza wa gives you eyesight. There are people who use them to, to contemplate over the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to read and study the book of Allah Azza wa to seek knowledge and to become, uh, to become, uh, to seek knowledge and to become people of, of, of people of, of insight to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then there are people who don't use it in that way. So Imam Tabir rahimahullah ta'ala is saying that this person had the ability to see and had the ability to to recognize the difference between right and wrong, to recognize the, the path of truth as opposed to the path of falsehood, as Allah Azza wa Jal will mention himself subhanahu wa ta'ala in a couple of, of verses. So Allah Azza wa Jal is saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the tools, gave us the skills, gave us the blessings by which we will be able to differentiate between right and wrong. As as Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala he said, Alam Najallahu Ainin Niamu min Allahi Mutavahira, Yukarru Kabiha Kema Tashkur. Allah Azza wa gave you these amazing blessings. Amazing blessings that are visible, that you can actually benefit from, that you can see, that are tangible to you, so that you may have uh, thanked him and showed him gratitude subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know from the greatest ways of showing gratitude to, gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the blessings that he has given to someone is to use those blessings in ways that are pleasing to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah azawajal gives you a blessing, to use that blessing is something which is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam disliked this false type of modesty. He disliked a false sense of humility. He disliked a false sense of ascetism where some people have the ability to wear clean clothes and to wear nice clothes Right, clothes that aren't extravagant or that don't show off, but normal clothes, right? There are there are good clothes and clean clothes that are, as a person should do, as they should look after their appearance. But they don't do so because they want to show a false sense of piety or a false sense of humil- humility or a false sense of being needy and not being attached to the dunya. And that's mentioned in hadith where the Prophet ﷺ came across a man who was wearing like torn and, 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 and very unkempt type of clothes. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, don't you have the wealth? by which you can wear normal clean, normal clothes? The man said, yes. He said, then do so. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves to see the effects of his blessings upon his servants. Allah azza wa gave you wealth, means you have the ability to drive a car that is good, to wear clothes that are clean and nice. To, and those are blessings that Allah azza wa gave to, and he likes to see the benefit of those blessings. Obviously, there are two extremes here. There's the extreme of going to extravagance and showing off, but there is obviously, therefore, the other extreme. And that is the extreme of a person who doesn't wear things which in the urf, in the custom of the people, would be considered befitting for that person. And so it is a position of, of being balanced between the two. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves a person to use the blessings that they have in good. So to dress good is a blessing of Allah azza wa jal. To use that wealth in order to live a comfortable and good life is a blessing. And using that blessing in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And no doubt then, that is the first stage a second stage and a higher stage is to use them in ways and means that will bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if it's something which brings you closer to Allah azza wa jal, then that is something which is good. So likewise, eyesight, right? it is one of the greatest blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can give. And it's mentioned in some of the narrations in a hadith uh, that the scholars differed over its authenticity or not, but it's mentioned that, that a man will come on the day of judgment. And all this person did, all this man did in his whole life was worship Allah, obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He lived a life of servitude and submission. From the moment that he reached the age of maturity or puberty to the moment he died, he dedicated himself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you can imagine this person decades, right? 50, 60, 70 years, all he did, or maybe even more, all he did is worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The hadith goes on to say that this man on the day of judgment will be asked or will be, will be told that he is going to be rewarded and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bestow his mercy upon him. The man will say on this day, O oh Allah, I want to be judged according to my own deeds, not through your mercy, O oh Allah. 
Right? And we know another hadith of the Prophet said that no one will enter into Jannah except through the mercy of Allah. They said, not even you, O Messenger of Allah. He said, not even me, unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showers me with his mercy. This person comes on the day of judgment thinking that all he's done is worship Allah for, whole, for the whole of his life. Oh Allah, judge me today according to my deeds, my actions, not through your mercy. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will command that all of his deeds are put on one side of the scale and on the other side of the scale, all of the blessings that Allah Azza wa bestowed upon him. And it will be seen that his lifetime of worship was only equal to, this, to the blessing of one eye, half of his eyesight, one eye. And that shows you the amazing nature of the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we often take for granted. The blessing of being able to see, the blessing of being able to hear, the blessing of being able to speak, the blessing of being able to feel and touch and to sense things, the blessing of being able to walk, the blessing of the way that our heart beats and the way that our blood pumps in our body and the, bla- the way that our brains work. All of these blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal has given to us and they are countless and many that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon us. All of these blessings that we take for granted. The man was saying that narration, he comes to the end of the narration and he says, Oh Messenger of oh Allah, rather than give me your mercy. And Allah Azza wa enters him to Jannah through his mercy. Because his whole life of worship only equal a single uh, a single eye, right? half of his eyesight. And that shows to you the amazing blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us through this eyesight. But if we don't use those eyes to watch what is good, to look at what is good, to see what is good, but rather we use that eyesight to look at what is haram, to look at what is evil, to look at something which is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that then shows that we haven't used those blessings in ways that are be, uh, beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa Jal describes this here. Alam Does this person not have uh, two eyes? And no doubt from the greatest meanings of this verse or from the foremost meanings of this verse is to use those eyes to be able to differentiate between right and wrong, truth and falsehood. To use those eyes to be able to discern the path that will bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this person, if they recognize the path that brings them closer to Allah azza wa jal, that is what you want, right? That is what that is the greatest means and way of using that great, that blessing of eyesight that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to a person. Uh, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala says something very similar in the, in the tafsir of this verse. Did we not give to this person two eyes, meaning so that, that he could see, right? That he could see and that he could look. And Ibn Ashur uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that Allah Azza wa Jal only mentions the eyes here, meaning that Allah Azza wa Jal was going to mention the tongue and, and then the lips, but he doesn't mention any of the other senses that a person has or any of the other blessings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the eyes. And he says that is because it is from the greatest of blessings and the one that is most beneficial for a person. And that's why you find that a person may be blind, but they can still achieve a great amount and they can attain a great amount of knowledge. In fact, I know, you know there were many of the scholars of the past who were blind, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the ability to understand and gave them the ability to memorize and gave them the ability to contemplate and to reflect and they became amazing scholars in their own right, even in our times, the likes of, or in recent times, the likes of Sheikh Ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, from the scholars that you know, I, I know of personally, or at least was aware of, the likes of Sheikh Ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamid, rahimahullah, and their, their teacher, Sheikh Muhammad bin Ibrahim, al-Sheikh, and many others from our scholars. In fact, in, at one time in the last like 100 years or so, it was very common actually in some parts of the world for people to be afflicted with blindness, either from birth or from a very young age. Um, and, and those individuals still became great scholars, rahimahullah, rahimahumullah ta'ala. I know of certain scholars, like for example, the existing uh, mufti, the current mufti of Saudi Arabia, Shah Abdul Aziz al-Sheikh, may Allah Azza wa preserve him and give him good health. One of the things that he would do, because he was someone who was blind, I, I don't know if it was from birth or from a very young age, but for the vast majority of his life, he has been blind. And then he would have people that would come and read to him, because he can't read. But he wants to read Sahih Bukhari, he wants to read Sahih Muslim, he wants to read the books of Tafsir, he wants to understand. And so he would have people, whether from his friends or family members, reading to him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the person, a person the ability to sometimes benefit and learn more, even though they can't see, than the person who has the ability to see. Some of those scholars were far greater in knowledge and in terms of the understanding of the religion than those who have the ability to use both eyes. And that is a gift from the gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he bestows upon whomsoever he wills.
Ibn Ashur is saying that the eyesight is one of the greatest and most beneficial of things that you can have. Right? It is one of the greatest, most beneficial things that you can have that a person can see. Uh, Imam Al-Tabari, or rather Ibn Al-Qayyim, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this as an evidence against an individual because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who is all-seeing. And Allah Azzawajal bestowed upon a person the ability to see. So the fact that they don't use that ability in a way that brings them closer to Allah Azzawajal, brings them closer to the truth, then that is a sign or it is a evidence that is being established against them. And so Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says concerning these individuals who don't think that anything can overpower them, don't think that they are being held to account, who spend their wealth either indulged in heedlessness and negligence or they spend that wealth in what is worse which is in opposing Allah and his Prophet وسلم, and his religion Allah says don't they have eyesight that we gave them don't they have eyes did, did we not give to them eyes in verse number 9 then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and he says وَشَفَتِينَ the tongue and lips did we not give them eyesight did we not give them a tongue and lips and the tongue and the lips are obviously for the ability to be able to speak, as Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said, وَلِسَانًا يُعَبِّرُ بِهِ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ مَا أَرَادَ وَشَفَتِينَ Allah gave to this person a tongue for the ability to be able to speak and to uh, express what they feel and what, they, uh, what, what their heart contains. And Allah Azzawajal gave to them also lips. نِعْمَةً مِنَّا بِذَلِكَ عَلَيْهِ As a great uh, blessing that Allah Azzawajal bestowed, upon this person. And Ibn Kathir ta'ala, said something very similar. He said that Allah says that we gave to him lips and a tongue that he may speak with it so that he may be able to express what he has within him. Lips that a person uses in order to be able to speak and be able to, to eat. And something which adds beauty to his face and to his mouth. Ibn Ashur, ta'ala, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the lips as well as the tongue. Right? Normally when we're speaking about the tongue or we're speaking about speech and the ability to express oneself, we would either say probably, or in Arabic anyway, they would usually say the tongue. Right? They say, This person is one of the most eloquent people. And they say, literally speaking, that he has the most eloquent tongue. It is usually the tongue that is uh, that is being used in terms of expressing a person's ability to speak and their eloquence. Ibn Ashur, however, he says, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just stop at the word lips, uh, rather tongue. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala adds the word lips to it as well. And that's because it is the lips that help you to express yourself. It is the lips that form certain letters for you. Like for example in the Arabic language and in every single language. But the Arabic language has certain words or certain letters rather that actually emanate from the lips. right? And that's why for those of us uh, or for those of you that have studied Tajweed and you look at Makharij al-Huruf, the different parts of the throat and the tongues and the mouth, and the mouth uh, from where the, the letters emanate from. One of those Makharij, one of those exit points is the, uh, the lips. So for example the letter mean, the letter ba, the letter wow, right? You can't form those letters just simply with the tongue, but rather there is an element of the uh, element of the lips doing what it is that they're doing as well. And that's why Ibn Ashur, he says, and from the very precise ways in which the Quran expresses itself, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't just mention the tongue by itself, but he added with it to its to it its lips. And this is different to the general norm amongst the Arabs when they would speak about this issue because they would simply stick to the tongue and not really mention the lips. But Ibn Kathir ta'ala, as we see, he goes slightly further than just the ability to speak, but rather he also mentions the other benefits of using your lips for eating and for drinking and for sucking and for certain other actions that we need our lips for and it is something which generally beautifies as he says the face and the mouth rahimahullah ta'ala ibn al-qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala he says that allah azzawajal gave the person the ability to speak and express themselves because a person who can't speak and express themselves 
So for example, someone who is mute, right? And maybe now it's slightly easier in the ability that people can, you know, we have certain technologies and so on that can help certain people express themselves. But if you think about it, generally speaking, a person who can't speak, a person who can't express themselves, even with the aid of those technologies, or even if they had the ability to write, it is such a longer and more difficult process than a person who can simply speak and express themselves. And that's why, you know, anyone, for example, who's a parent knows that if you have, for example, a young child, a baby, who has yet to be able to speak and form words and express themselves, but that child is incessantly crying, and you don't realize why they're crying. Are they crying because they're hungry? Are they crying because they need a nappy change? Are they are you are they crying because they're ill or they're sick? Are they crying because they're in some pain or whatever? It is literally an, a, a process of elimination. It's literally some type of guesswork until you come to the thing that once you do it, you find out okay, that was the issue that was happening because that child doesn't have the ability to express themselves. Or someone who reaches an age where they're unable to speak anymore because of, for example, may Allah keep us all safe and save us from it. Things like, for example, a stroke or certain other types of debilitating illnesses and conditions where a person then loses the ability to speak. And you literally have to go through this process. Maybe they can't even write because they don't have the ability to write anymore. So now again, it is something which requires a great deal of work and effort. So the ability to speak the ability to be able to express yourself, the ability to tell people what you need and what you don't need, what you want, what you don't want, the ability to be able to command and to prohibit, to, to deny, to all of the things that we do with speech. It is from the greatest blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, وَهَلْ كَمَالُ الْمَخْلُوقِ مُسْتَفَادٌ إِلَّا مِنْ كَمَالِ خَالِقِهِ And all of these things that make a person complete, are they not only a sign of the perfection and the completeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who created mankind? And I think that that is a very nice point that Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, as he often does, alayhi rahmatullah, that he brings here. So Allah azza wa jal reminds this person, in this context of seeking guidance, of seeking knowledge, of coming closer to Allah azza wa jal, doesn't this person have eyes that they can see by? So they can distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. Eyesight that they could use to be able to see the signs that are bringing that are being brought to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the universe and from everything that is around them. And doesn't this person have the ability to speak? So therefore they can question, they can debate, they can ask for explanation, they can engage. Because if something doesn't make sense, they can inquire. If they need further collaboration or clarification, they can do so. All of these things that a person then has the ability to do with the ability of speech. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that reminds us of this. In verse number 10, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and he says, And we pointed out to him the two clear ways and then in brackets of good and evil. And that is the translation of uh, Professor Abdul Hanim. Muhsin Khan says, and shown him the two ways and again in brackets, good and evil, Mufti Taqi, and showed him the two ways, and also in Sahih International, and have shown him the two ways. In verse number 10, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنِ هَدَيْنَاهُ And we guided him, or in this sense that we made clear to him. right? And we know, for example, that in Hidayah, as we mentioned before, there is two types of guidance. Two types of guidance generally when we see it mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Two types of guidance. One is what is called Hidayatul Irshad, which is the guidance of showing someone the way. And that is something which is done by the Prophets and the Messengers of Allah and by everyone who calls to the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is showing people the way, making clear to them that this is the correct path, this is the true path. Right? The second type of Hidayah is Hidayat Tawfiq, and that is the guidance of acceptance. So you have the guidance of, if you like, for example, showing someone. Right? the guidance of literally guiding in terms of showing them the way. And then you have Hidayat Tawfiq, which is the guidance of acceptance. The first one is something which is open for everyone. So anyone, for example, who heard the message of the Prophet ﷺ during his lifetime or after his lifetime has received the first type of guidance. That is not the guidance, though, that gives a person salvation. It is not the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, based upon it, rewards someone and gives to them Jannah. But it is a type of guidance. The second type of guidance is the one that Allah brings or, 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 or gives along with it or with the acceptance of it, salvation and reward in Jannah. And that is the guidance of acceptance. 
So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ Right? We have guided him. This is the first type of guidance, which exactly, which means to show. The guidance of showing, of pointing out, of making clear. And that is why you find the translations are uh, worded in that way. And we pointed out to him. We showed him. We made clear to him. Right? The two ways. And najdain. Najdain is the dual form. The single of the word or the singular of the word is a najd. And najd means a path. Right? As Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti ta'ala said. Uh, but more specifically, it is an area or a path that is high, that is up high. As Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala said, Najd is a, an area or a land that is high, higher than the land that is below, meaning it goes uphill, but it is obviously not as high as the mountains. And so it is called Najd for that reason. And that's why the area of Najd today, for example, in the Arabian Peninsula, and even in the time of the Prophet وسلم, what they would refer to as Najd, which is today, you know, the area of Riyadh, modern-day Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, Qasim, that whole area is called Najd. And below Najd, you have an area which classically would be called Tihama, and now it is called Hijaz, and the area which is basically Mecca and Medina and so on. Najd is called Najd, classically in Arabic, because it is higher. It is higher than the land of Mecca and Medina in terms of you know, it's, it's elevation. It is higher than the land of Mecca and Medina. So you're actually going uphill as you're going towards the area of Najd. And that's why it was called Najd. That's what Najd means. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here, Did we not make clear to, or did we not point out to him or show to him the two paths? The meaning is two clear paths. Two paths that are very easily visible. right? Because they stand out. They stand out above Everything else. And that's why Ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud and others, uh, they, they rather Imam Al-Tabari, before that he said, We made clear to him the two paths. And Najd is a path that is up high, that is elevated, that is easy to see and therefore easier to follow. When we look at the, um, the tafsir of this verse, we find that there are there are two um, there are two different positions of the scholars of Tafsir had in terms of what are those two paths what are those two paths and they both of them have uh, their essence if you like in uh, statements from the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in uh, one is one that has been taken by the vast majority of the scholars of Tafsir classically in, in, in the early generations and then subsequently those who came after them and followed them and the second one is also found in some of the statements of the companions, radiallahu anhum, but it's not one that you will find as, um, as popular or as common or as widely uh, adopted as the first. So the first one is the position of the likes of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, radiallahu anhu, the famous companion, and as we know, bin Mas'ud, radiallahu anhu, is also from the great scholars of the Quran and from the people who the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uh, recommended that a person, if they want to learn the Quran or read the Quran in the way that it was revealed, that they should take the recitation of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. So Ibn Mas'ud was a, a scholar of the Quran, and Ibn Mas'ud would often say that there's not a verse of the Quran except that I know when it was revealed and why it was revealed, and I know everything about it. And if I didn't know something about it and I found someone who did, I would travel to the ends of the earth in order to meet them. And he's no doubt older and more senior than the likes of. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and Jabir and Aisha and others in terms of his age but also in terms of his seniority in the sense that he's from the early Muslims and so he's someone who has a great status in this religion and is well known and respected for his knowledge of Islam in general but specifically of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Quran Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu his tafsir of this verse of Najdain he says Sabirul khayri wa sabirul shar it is the path of good and the path of evil and you will find, therefore, that many of the scholars of tafsir who came after him took that position from amongst them Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his sahih. He said in the tafsir of this verse also, al-Najdain al-Khiru wa-Shar. The two paths that are being referred to is the path of good and the path of evil. The, uh, and that is the position that you will find of many of the scholars of, of, um, of, of tafsir. And it is similar, as Imam al-Tabadi, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioned, uh, it is similar to the verse in the Quran in Surah Al-Insan, 
when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the creation of man at the beginning of, of, of that surah, إِنَّا خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ مِن نُطْفَةٍ أَمْشَاجٍ نَبْتَلِيهِ فَجَعَلْنَاهُ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا Allah speaks about a person's ability, the, the creation of a person, of a human, and how Allah Azza wa Jal gave them the ability to see and the ability to hear. Then Allah says, إِنَّا هَدَيْنَاهُ السَّبِيلِ We guided him to his path. إِمَّا شَاكِرًا وَإِمَّا كَفُورًا Either he is grateful or either he is ungrateful and disbelieving. And so Allah again uses the word in Surah Al-Insan of Hidayah, of guidance. But again, there is the guidance of showing the path. In We showed him the path that he has, either the path of being grateful or the path of being ungrateful, meaning either the path of belief or disbelief. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that in the Quran, and that is why these scholars took that tafsir, because it is tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. They took the verse as being something which elucidates and clarifies the meaning of this verse in Surah Al-Balad. And so that is the statement of the likes of Ali radiallahu an, as we said, Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu an, it is one of the narrations uh, from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, and then many of the scholars such as Mujahid and Ikrimah and Abu Salih and Muhammad ibn Ka'am al-Quradi and al-Dahat and al-Ta' alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. And many of the scholars of tafsir, in fact, as we said, it is the position of the majority. And that is what Ibn Ashur uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, and the reason why good and evil are mentioned as najdain, as high paths, paths that are elevated, is because of how difficult it is for a person to be able to uh, traverse them. A path that is mountainous, that goes and weaves across in, into the hills, and, and it is very is much more difficult than a path that is flat and low on the ground and easy to walk, it is straight. A path that goes up high into the mountains, into the hills, it is najd, it is something which is raised up, requires more effort, it requires more work, it requires more diligence and, and perseverance and discipline. And that is why Ibn Ashur he says, because a person who follows that path, if it's a path of goodness, then they, then they will have, as we know on that path, obstacles and hardships and difficulties and trials and tribulations. They must overcome them in order to keep on that path. And so that is why Allah refers to it as a najd, that is a path that is high, a path that is almost mountainous, a path that is has its difficulties to traverse. And he says, and as for the path of evil, it is also a najd, right? It is also a najd because it is something which is also difficult. Not only not necessarily in, in traversing it because a person just engages in their desires and in the in in, in the in the enjoyments of the dunya, but it is difficult in terms of its repercussions and its consequences. It will be difficult in terms of the punishment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give to that individual. So both of them are, are, are difficult paths. One, immediately, because we know that the person who takes that path of good will have immediate hardships and difficulties, but ultimately, their ending is one of ease and comfort and felicity. It is one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless them with his reward. And the opposite is for the person who chooses the path of evil. Their immediate path may be easier, but the ultimate path will be extremely difficult and hard. And so both of them, therefore, are called and Najdeen. And he says, Rahimahullah uh, Ta'ala, and that is why Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala refers to them as being Najdeen, right? and it is known as Isti'ara. It is known as a type of borrowing, you know, uh, something that the Arabs, something that you know from terms of language, something that you can relate to, and using it for a meaning that is being referred to elsewhere. That is the first position, as we said, there is a position of the majority, and it will be the majority of the books that you come across in Tafsir, especially the, the, you know, the, the, the books of Tafsir that don't really go into uh, the different opinions and so on. They will simply suffice for this position, as you saw also in the translations that they simply said in brackets, the path of good and evil. And that is the position of the majority. The second position is the one that is mentioned by some of the scholars with Tafsir, and it is one that is attributed as being one of the two narrations of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. So Ibn Abbas is the first narration as we mentioned, which is the narration of it being the path of good or the path of evil. And he has this second narration. And that is that it's referring to هَدَيْنَاهُ الثَّدِيَيْنِ سَبِيلَ يَلَّبَنَ الَّذِي يَتَغَذَّى بِهِ وَيَنْبُتُ عَلَيْهِ لَحْمُهُ وَجِسْمُهُ That it's referring to the guidance of the two breasts of his mother that he can drink from, that a child suckles from and therefore grows in terms of their strength and that milk they use in order to grow in terms of their strength. And that was the position, as we said, one of the generations of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, and al-Dahak, for example, Ibn Makhlad, rahimahullah, from the scholars of tafsir also, 
uh, and maybe one or two others. Uh, that is the second position. How do we understand this? How does it relate to the context of these verses? And Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, because these are the paths in order for a person to live or die, meaning, especially classically, right, where people didn't have these formulas that they can now drink and other types of uh, means of, 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 of drinking and, and so on. If a child refused to suckle, refused to drink from the milk of his mother, then that child would most likely die. And if they take that path of drinking, it is something which gives them life. And it seems that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best that it is a type of, uh, you know, we have a spiritual life and we have a physical life. The physical life is that you literally need to eat and drink, provide provision for your body, your physical self from food and drink in order to be able to live. And spiritually, you need to follow the path of goodness in order to be able to live. And it seems that Allah Azza wa knows best. Therefore, that, that is the link between the two. That Allah Azza wa just as He guides you or He gives you the ability to guide you what is beneficial for, in terms of your life. So a person has the ability to know and they have the common sense to know that I need to be to eat and drink and to do certain things in order to function and to live in this life. Then likewise, they should also know that there are certain things that they need to do for their spiritual health in order for them to become closer to Allah Azza and to survive in the life of the hereafter or to at least have salvation in the life of the hereafter. So you work at both, you know, you work on, on both fronts. Uh, and because Ibn Abbas has both narrations, right? he has both, he says both, Tafsirs, that is how we reconcile between them and Allah knows best. Because if Ibn Abbas only had one, then you could say, okay, that's his position. And he wasn't really aware of the other one, or that's not something which came to his mind. The fact that he has both narrations shows you that Ibn Abbas was one of the scholars amongst the companions, an extremely knowledgeable individual, someone as well versed in the Quran and in the Sunnah, someone who knows uh, Tafsir. The fact that he's mentioned both shows you that he's not unaware of the position of the likes of Ibn Mas'ud and others, and he himself has narrations in which he says the same thing. And so that is how we uh, we go between the two. However, uh, no doubt the stronger of those two meanings, or the one that is foremost out of them anyway, is the first. That is referring to that Allah Azza is referring to a person's uh, choosing the path or being able to see the paths before them of, of righteousness and evil, of good and evil. Of, of guidance and misguidance, of truth and falsehood, and then they should be able to see and speak. And that is why we said those previous two verses, أَلَمْ نَجْعَلْ لَهُ وَشَفَتَيْنِ Did we not give to that person eyesight, right? the ability to see, eyes, as well as lips and a tongue, that's their ability to see, it's their ability to speak and to question and to inquire, and that therefore should help them with this verse, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنِ it should help them to be able to understand the path that brings them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The path that brings them closer to Allah azza wa jalla, to be able to discern between them. And that is why the, you know, there's a beautiful saying amongst the scholars of, of old, uh, and I can't remember which of the scholars, I think it was one of the tabi'een, rahimahumullah, or even maybe one of the companions. The, the name slips from my mind at the moment. Maybe someone, who's, uh, someone can research this and bring it back to us. When they were asked what helped you to become a student of knowledge, to become a scholar, they said, It is because I had a questioning tongue and it is because I had a heart that understands and comprehends. And so a person asks what they need to ask in order to learn. And so you often find, if you were to read the narrations, for example, of hadith like Bukhari and Muslim, you often find that the companions were asked questions by their students, by the tabi'een. Right, people would come and they would say, "What do you remember from, uh, you know, from the Hajj of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? What do you remember from uh, how the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam prayed? What do you remember of this incident when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam went to such and such a place and he did such and such?" And they would ask because they want to learn, and that is the difference between someone who asks to seek knowledge and to genuinely learn, and someone who does something which is extremely disliked and sometimes even prohibited, and that is simply to ask in order to get into, get into debate or ask in order to humiliate someone or ask in order to test someone's knowledge. That type of excessive, frivolous questioning is the one that is disliked in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah. It's the one that is dispraised by the scholars of Islam. But a person who asks because they genuinely need to know or is something which they want to know, it's a type of seeking knowledge, then that is no doubt one of the greatest 
ways and paths of seeking knowledge. So when you're reading something and you come across something and you don't know, you find someone who has more knowledge than you, someone who's older than you, someone who can ask. You ask those people that you think will have that knowledge. And it is a, an, a crucial element, an important element of seeking knowledge and one of the ways in which the scholars, since the times of old and even until now, have always sought knowledge. And a heart that is that processes, right? a heart that is understanding, a heart that is uh, that is intelligent, someone who can understand what is being said and can take that knowledge and benefit from it. Those two things are things which are crucial for a person when they want to learn and when they want to seek knowledge. And that's not even Islamic knowledge, but that's just generally. A person who excels in their line of work, whatever field they're in, if they're a person who can ask the right question at the right time and, and take those benefit from other people's knowledge and their experience and then they can understand the answers and they can interpret them and, and they can apply them, that person will be successful in whatever field they're in, in whatever uh, career they may choose to pursue. And it is the same for a person of knowledge or for a student of knowledge that they use it in terms of coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so being able to distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood, between those things, it is extremely uh, important, right? It is extremely important, and and to show you this, uh, you know, I remember some of our teachers saying that uh, they would read to their teachers from a book. Just say, for example, I don't know, you're reading from the Forty Hadith of Imam Nawawi, and then later on they would meet other people who read to their same teacher the same book, and those latter students would say to them sometimes that we, you know, we read to the Sheikh and he didn't really say anything, like we read. The book, the whole book to him, the 40 hadith of Imam al Nawawi, we read all of the hadith, and the teacher didn't really commentate, he didn't really speak, he didn't really explain anything. Whereas the first student learned a lot, he benefited. And they would tell me that the reason, the difference between them and their colleagues, or them and their fellow students, is because the second weren't really interested in learning in terms of they didn't have questions, they didn't ask the sheikh, they didn't prompt him, they just simply wanted to read and they wanted to finish the book, and the sheikh was happy and intent content for them to do so. That's what you come for. That's fine. You read the book. It's not a problem. And there's no harm and nothing bad in just simply reading a book of hadith. In fact, it is good and it is, inshallah, something which is rewarding. But a person who wants to learn will actually stop his teacher and he will ask, right? That's why you see the likes of Mujahid, rahimahullah, as we mentioned before, uh, the student of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma. Why is he one of the foremost, if not the foremost students of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, when it comes to uh, his, his tafsir, Imam al-Bukhari, more or less every single time when he chose a position of tafsir in his, uh, in, his, uh, in his sahih, he chose the position of the statements of Munjahid, and the scholars of old used to say that if the tafsir of Munjahid comes to you, it's enough. You don't need anyone else or anything else. Why? Because Munjahid said that I went over the Quran three times with Ibn Abbas, I would stop him at every verse and ask him. Now, if a person didn't stop Ibn Abbas, and Ibn Abbas and many students, Maybe he won't say anything. Maybe he doesn't feel the need to commentate. Maybe he doesn't feel the need to go into the explanation. But you stop and you ask, or you there are things that you don't understand, or there are questions that you have. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you do that each and every single time with a teacher, but it shows you that it is an extremely important tool uh, in terms of seeking knowledge. And to know when and how to ask is something which requires, obviously, wisdom also and maturity. There are certain occasions and certain settings in which that is easier to do. For example, if it's a private gathering, it's one-to-one, -one, it's a small group of students. As opposed to, for example, if you're in a masjid and there's hundreds of people and you're constantly stopping the sheikh and the sheikh is trying to uh, teach a large group of people. That is obviously some wisdom that is required in that regard. So inshallah ta'ala, I think maybe uh, that is a good place to stop for today. Before we come next week, inshallah ta'ala, on to verses number 11 onwards. So if there's any questions, inshallah, we can uh, take them. Otherwise, we will conclude for today. <coughs> okay, so Lisa has a question on the lesson of the 30th in tafsir of verse 3. You mentioned two positions, wa ma mastari and ma nafiya. In the recap at the beginning of last week's lesson, you mentioned ma uh, and ma nafiya. I didn't understand why ma mustariya isn't mentioned in the recap and why ma mausula is. Uh, so mustariya and mausula are very similar in terms of their function in, in this context. So it may have been the slip of the tongue. So uh, if I said uh, generally speaking, as a general rule, 
or I mentioned during the class is the one that you should go with as opposed to the recap. The recap I normally do, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, I just simply recap from uh, last week's lesson and so sometimes I may, there may be a slip of the tongue or sometimes I may mention something and it's not exactly what I what I meant. Uh, so the recap I just do at the beginning of the lesson, 5-10 minutes, I don't go through my notes or anything. It's just from last week's lesson just to do a simple recap and that recap is simply just to, you know, just so that we can continue to connect the verses or the lessons from last week to this week. And for some, some, some of you who may, for example, have missed last week's lesson or you haven't had a chance yet to, uh, to catch up, you know, it's just something very brief. So it's not meant to be like the lesson in that sense. So I may miss something, I may make a mistake, I may do uh, something else. So what I would say generally as a rule is, uh, is just to avoid, avoid any further or future uh, confusion is what I mentioned in the actual lesson itself. That is what you should go with. As for the recaps, then uh, you know, then then it's not something which you need to really worry about, especially in terms of making your notes and what is the correct position. When I'm going through the lesson, I have my notes in front of me. When I'm doing the recap, it's just based on like memory. So I may like sometimes make a mistake or, or sometimes just say something else uh, when I intend something different. Okay, Ashfaq is asking, is there any link we can make between these verses and other verses in the Quran which mention people are deaf, dumb and blind? Yeah, of course. There are many verses that speak about this issue of people who don't uh, take heed of benefit, right? And, and they don't take benefit. And no doubt these people that Allah is referring to in Surah Al-Balad have the ability to see and have the ability to speak. Right? Allah is saying, did we not give to them eyes and lips and a tongue? But they don't benefit from them, they don't use them. Just as you can have any blessing of wealth or health or whatever else, but you don't make benefit of it. And that is why Allah Azza wa Jalla, when He describes, for example, in Surah Al-Baqarah, people being summun, bukmun, umyun, deaf, dumb, and blind, it's not because they are literally deaf, dumb, and blind, but it is because that they have the ruling of being deaf, dumb, and blind because they didn't benefit from their eyesight, from their hearing, and from their ability to speak. And so it's as if they are deaf, dumb, and blind, right? For all of the good that is done for them, those blessings, they have not benefited them in any way. And so that is similar in, in these verses, and that is, as, as you correctly pointed out, a general recurring pattern that you will find throughout the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah azza wa jal knows best. Okay, jazakumullah khayran, barakallahu feekum, and inshallah ta'ala, I will see you all next week. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.